Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Leaders Playbook, a show about how to drive transformational impact in your organization. We talk with innovative leaders across multiple industries to hear about the best tools, resources, practices, and strategies to help you reach the top of your game. I can't wait to share our leaders' insights with you. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Dr. Diane Hamilton. I am the CEO of Tenera, and I also serve on the Board of Advisors for Global Mentor Network. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Susan Haley. Susan is Vice President, Global Talent Acquisition and Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at OpenText. OpenText is the global leader in enterprise information management and ranked highest by Gartner Group for strategic vision and ability to execute in content services and business networks. Building on huge success in Canada, OpenText is positioned to help large global enterprises manage and transition into the cloud. Join me as we hear from Susan regarding global talent recruiting to improve DNI and engagement. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Diane. Nice to be here. Oh, well, I was really looking forward to it, and you're welcome. This is going to be a great discussion. We're going to go in a few different directions here. And I, I think, though, it really helps to start the show with just a background on my guests because you guys work so hard to get to this level of success. So can you give me your backstory? Sure. Gosh, I have been in this field now about 25 years, but I also made a career shift midway through my career. I had started out in marketing and sales in the tech industry. I, my first job was at IBM. I went to Berkeley. So I, I literally graduated in June and started in August with, with IBM and you know, really had a, a lot of fun in the marketing and sales function, a lot of good success. And I halfway through my career decided I really was much more interested in the people side than the product side per se. So made the move into talent and had the opportunity to work for a a leading executive search firm named Aegon Zender, where I really learned a lot about recruiting and executives. and, And then from there have moved more into the corporate side, leading that function, as well as all the rest of recruiting and equity, diversity, and inclusion. But it's been primarily based in tech. I've had a couple forays out, but generally it's been in the tech industry. Well, you know, it's funny as you said that. I think I graduated in August and started as a VAR for IBM in August <laughs> when I was back in the day. They were selling uh, System 36s and 38s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. It's, it's been a while. Been a while. <laughs> but I love tech and I love people. So I think you and I would could spend all night talking about our commonalities. And I think that, you know, when you talk about this, background you had. You mentioned your executive search and leadership experience. And and my sister actually is a recruiter and she worked in recruiting before she was in nurse recruiting. She talks about how different it is. And because I've said, why don't you create courses to do this? And and recruiting's not the same in every industry. And that can be challenging when you're putting people in these global positions. And it's challenging, especially when they're working in different countries. And you and I've talked at your your people, when you hire them, they're already in those countries. You're not moving them to other countries, but there's still a lot of yeah. different challenges that go along with t- training in, right. in foreign areas. So what That's kind right. of challenges do you face when you do that? Well, you know, every market is a little bit different. And when I say market, I mean geography for talent. So, you know, even Canada, you know, we're a Canadian-based company, but that's a little bit different than the United States. And we have a big contingent of employees in India. So again, that's different. So I think, you know, it's really 
I think it's being very sensitive to what is important in that culture in terms of what it takes to be successful in business and in creating value for the business. I mean, the nice thing that's universal is that, you know, we all try to create value in the same way, which is essentially making more money than we spend. (laughs) It's pretty simple. And that's true in every place that we operate. So, you know, but finding the people that can execute that goal in a particular function. So, you know, it's going to be very different in professional services than it will be in engineering. And again, very different in sales than it will be in marketing. And and they are different sales and marketing. So, you know, I think the key is understanding what the job really is, what the level of expectation is on that role, and then assessing people with respect to their backgrounds and their experience and their accomplishments to really pick the best one or try to get the best one. Because sometimes you pick the best one and they, you know, we're still in a bit of a, well, certainly at the executive level a market where people have choices. So you may think, oh my gosh, we've found the right person. Well, guess what? They may have three other options in front of them. So then it's like, okay, now what do we do? And, and how do we make this really attractive to that candidate? So, you know, you go from assessing and selecting And with certain roles and times of, you know, the economy, you're switching really quickly to how do I sell them on this opportunity? You made so many good points there. And it reminded me when I worked for AstraZeneca, when I was in sales, they put me on this marketing team where I had to go back and look at all their flyers and things before they were coming out, all their, their marketing information. And they had me go test it on the doctors in the field to see what they thought of it. And I think it's really good to get that cross-pollination of experience within different areas of the company. Like you said, marketing is not the same thing as sales. Marketing comes up with them, you know, the marketing campaigns of what they're going to say and the salespeople deliver it. And if they don't necessarily always work together, should they work together more like that? I mean, do companies cross-pollinate like that? And what do you okay. guys do there? I mean, I think very effective companies cross-pollinate. When you find dysfunction, it's usually because they aren't connecting. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all people and we all have opinions. And so, you know, if it's not working between sales and marketing, it's, you know, the answer is probably in the middle between one group not doing what they need to do and the other group not telling them what they need to do. So working through that is really important and making sure that, you know, you don't end up in these silos of of functions because you can't run an organization that way. And, you know, if you need marketing, if you think marketing is important for your business and it's going to drive value, then it needs to be something that really supports your sales efforts and vice versa. So when your salespeople are out there learning things, they don't sort of not communicate, hey, you know, you like you said, you know, we use this flyer if I'm the salesperson and my, my client, you know, my doctor, my customer didn't understand it. Or, you know, told me they never read these things. You know, that would be really important information for the marketer to go, wow, well, then why are we doing this? And maybe we need to do this differently. And so it's, you know, really gathering because, you know, at the end of the day, we're just solving a lot of problems. But if we don't know what the problems are, then we're going to go off and solve the wrong problems. So it's important to know what the right problems are that are going to make your business stronger, make your function stronger, and hopefully, you know, make you more money. And that's so true. And as you talked about silos, I I actually have my students read the silo effect quite often in some of my courses, because we tend to not think outside of our cubicle and our silos. And and some of the best answers we get are from looking into other areas, even other companies and other industries are really helpful. 
I think a lot of companies are dealing with a lot of cultural awareness training with their employees because we get so used to what way we've done it and how we like it. And you mentioned uh, India, for example, having a different culture than maybe another country. For I'm curious, what cultural differences have you seen in India that are different from what you have in Canada? And how do you go about training there? Well, one thing that, and again, I have the lens of recruiting and you know, talent development, but here's a really interesting, I think this is interesting in the talent selection and recruiting area. So in India, when you get a job offer, let's just say you get a job offer, you have, I think it's either two months or three months, you know, so you don't leave right away. You know, it's this sort of period of time. And so you've accepted the offer, you got a new offer, you're going to leave your company, you told your company you're going to leave. Well, what happens is they have, <laughs> they have these websites, you may know this, Diane, they have these websites where you can go find another job in that three period, that three month period. And so, you know, if I'm the recruiter for a company and I, oh, yay, I got Diane and she's going to start in three months. Life is great. Well, guess what? You know, Diane can put her resume literally on a website that says, you know, noticeperiod.com, which I actually think is the name of a website in India. Another person like me from another company can say, hey, Diane's on the market. I'm going to go after her and I'll pay her $5 more than, you know, Susan was going to pay her. So you end up with this dropout rate. We, we literally measure it. It's a dropout rate on candidates because they say yes, but then 50% of the time they don't show up or 22% or whatever, you know. So you really, you know, you just never, you can sort of never rest that you solve the problem of building your teams in India because you're going to have this leaky candidate pipeline, basically, because other companies are going to. So it's a very competitive market. We don't have that in the United States. It's sort of or even in Canada, like it's sort of bad form to re, to re, you know renege is the word renege on an offer. So that is just not the case in India, and you know they don't. It's just not a problem. So do you strategically plan for that and, yeah. and try to win them yeah. back with more money? Well, money is one thing, but also effort. So you know you try to really spend time up front, like finding the people that are perfect fits for your company, the culture that they're looking for the kind of experience and work that you do. And it, so, so you spend a lot more, you should spend more time up front. You could throw money at the problem. A lot of companies do. And if they have high gross margins, great, they can do it. But if, you know, let's, I mean, if you're kind of mindful of your costs, you live with that or you, or you do come back and you know what the rate is. So if it's 50%, then you know you have to hire at a higher rate up front because you're going to lose 50% of them. You really look at these numbers and then you plan your recruiting strategy accordingly to get you to the final number you're trying to reach. Does that limit you on your DNI efforts? Like you have to get who you can get and that you can't be as culturally diverse? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yes and no. I think the yes part of it is, of course, you know, maybe you had really focused on bringing women in, let's say, and, you know, guess what? You know, 50% aren't making it through the process. But the no part is that up front, you can be more mindful of who you're going after. So for example, there are lots, not lots, but there are many schools in India that are for women only. They're women engineering schools or they're women focused schools. So you could spend a lot of time cultivating the relationship with that school, get to know the, the school, the school gets to know you as a company. And you, so you spend that time up front with a source of talent that 
is compatible with you and you invest up front so that when they do, when we make an offer to those folks, they're like, oh, I know all about open text. They're a great company. I'm in. And sometimes, you know, money isn't the only lever, obviously. You know, I mean, I'm sure all of us have had jobs where we made some money and we hated what we were doing. So, you know, we can really sell. I always like to sell the quality of the job and what you're looking for right now in your career. And again, if, if you cultivate these relations, and it could be with women's organizations. So, so the, it's a yes and no to your question. How much does word of mouth have to do with getting more people? Like if you do well, it helps. Help, you know, I mean, it helps, you know? I mean, and, and there are things like Glassdoor and, and Comparably and, you know, all these different sites where, you know, anybody can go and say what they want to say. Or, you know, in your own network, you can say what you want to say about either the experience of that company working there, the interview experience. I mean, there's this thing called the theory of weak ties. You may have heard of this, where you don't get jobs from the people that you know really well. You usually get connected to somebody that somebody else knows, and then it's their brother-in-law's sister that has a job. And that's where, so it's this theory of weak ties. So it is good to have it out there if you're looking for a job, because it does help that people, because generally people really like to help if they can. I'm actually teaching a class right now where I'm having them develop their LinkedIn profile in one of the assignments. And I said, it's not necessarily the connection you have. It might be somebody that they are connected to. So don't always be too quick to say no to checking people out to see whether you want to connect with them. And it's just, you never know what I had. Some of the boards I serve on are simply because somebody's brother or whatever, cousin, brother-in-law, you know, and they've led to some great things. And I love that point, you know, and I was thinking about some of the other content that we teach in some of the courses. And one of the things I include is an interview I did with Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. And when I interviewed him, it was not about finance, which is probably through him. I'm sure he's expecting it to be all financial questions. I was asking him about interviewing and how well he felt he can judge people in the interview process. And he said, you know, it's just so hard because you, you talk to them for such a short amount of time and they'll tell, you know, it's not about what they can do, it's what they will do. So I love that. But how do you know if people are will do's or can do people? Yeah. Or, or say they do. Right. <laughs> people. Say they do. Yeah. That's a better yeah. I mean, honestly, that's the heart of recruiting. And, you know, there's a couple of key questions that I always ask. You know, one is, why are you, why are you making a move right now? Why are we talking? You know, because generally there are people that are employed and they're, you know, generally they have a job. So I always try to understand what's motivating them to have a conversation about a potential job. The second part, though, is, and this is really behavioral interviewing 101, but basically, you know, tell me about a time when you faced XYZ problem. Tell me what you did. And tell me what the result was. And I take a lot of notes on that because the way people tell that story is really revealing generally. And I usually go very quiet at that point. And I try not to talk a lot in an interview. You know, you learn a lot when you're quiet. And I like to talk, so I have to really manage myself. But then the second part of that is that once I kind of get that, then when we do reference checking, we can do some validation. Did that really happen? And, and then I have the notes and, you know, hey, they, you know, apparently you went through this at that time and, you know, so-and-so said they did this and that, you know, and you can tell right away when, when references will say, oh my gosh, they saved us. Thank, you know, thank, oh my gosh, you know, or yeah, they were part of the team, you know. <laughs> Big difference. 
Yeah. It's a big difference. Uh-huh. What are you looking for in that kind of scenario? Are you looking for them to have solved very difficult challenges or the way they've solved the challenges or the way their, their perception is of the challenges? The first two. The perception of the challenges is not that interesting to me. I can judge. I mean, as an interviewer, I'll judge if it was a heart problem or not. But I think for them, I think it's equally, you know, did they solve it and how did they do it? And again, here's another revealing thing. If it's I, 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 that's really different than we, we, we. And, and, you know, and it's, and that's kind of the nuance to it because generally you do solve these problems in teams. And then the question is, well, what was your role on the team? You know, were you the note taker or were you the project manager or were you the person who went to the executives with the recommendation? You know, what role did you play? And, you know, and then what was the outcome? And actually, I personally, even if the outcome is like, gosh, we didn't even make it, we didn't get it through. They didn't approve it. I'm usually kind of okay with that because I really want to understand what their role was. And and, because, you know, look, you don't win them all in business. And sometimes I'm actually impressed with someone who would give me an example like that because it says a lot about, you know, what they learned too in the process. It definitely does. And I I guess what I was getting at with perception was, do they sometimes perceive problem as a big deal that they solve when it's like a nothing little thing to you? Or do they, you know what I'm saying? That's why I said, I'll be the judge of whether it was a big deal or not. (laughs) Well, and, and with respect to what I'm looking for, you know, maybe it's a small little problem. And maybe I think it's a small little problem. And maybe I think, wow, if they solve that small little problem, that's a huge problem at my company or the company I'm recruiting for and vice versa. They may think, wow, you know, I solved this amazing thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, and, and maybe it is amazing, but it has no relevance to what we're trying to get done. There is so much, in my opinion, there's so much nuance and art to this as much as there is science. And, you know, you can take all the notes, well, you can, you know, have 20 people interview them and have a conversation with 20 people and come to whatever conclusion. And I do believe in panel interviews, by the way. I believe getting different perspectives is really important because, you know, no, but none of us see everything. None of us see all the edges. But, you know, in the interest of time and when we have to do things quickly, you know, then sometimes, you know, not all of it, I mean, every organization would like to do things perfectly, but you don't always have the luxury of time. So in that case, then it's important to have enough people in the process that have had experience doing this so that you minimize the mistakes you make. And you will make hiring mistakes. Everybody, like if anybody says they've never made a hiring mistake, I I just don't believe them because, you know, we're not perfect. Well, you know, as you're talking about the panel interviews, I, I teach a lot of uh, personality t- type of stuff. And so in the marketing classes and the sales classes and different things that I teach, we often refer to panel interviews and what the challenges are. and. I think from an employee perspective, it's interesting because you try to reach the interviewer in their way they prefer to be given information. So if you're like a high data person, if I'm talking to Susan, I'm going to give all this data, right? But maybe as you're talking to Diane, she's this extrovert that wants you to be super chatty, super, you know. So I find panel interviews really very interesting to see how a person's flexibility is. Do you find when you do panel interviews that people change their personality, the way they deliver the content based on reading the other people? Or do you think they just give it the same way all the way across the board most of the time? Well, you know, that's a great question. I think, well, I know because when we do our debriefs, we're looking for the commonality. We're not looking for, well, 
they answered this question that way. And then they answered, I mean, in fact, it would sort of be a negative if they were like not authentic about who they are, if you know what I'm saying. And so I think, you know, we're looking probably more for people that were authentically answering the question the way that they would answer the question. And I don't mean regardless of who's interviewing them, but, you know, that sort of shows to me at least some integrity, I guess you could say, or, you know, telling the truth to some extent, but you could also, you know, and, 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 and you may find that in a panel interview, the person that's really focused on the data may come back and go, you know, they really didn't give me enough data to make me feel comfortable. And that's an important data point, no pun intended, but that's an important thing to understand if the job requires that. Now, if the job doesn't require that, as much. And it is more the extroverted piece, like a sales job, let's say, perhaps, you know, I would, great point, you know, totally makes sense. But for this particular job, we're going to go towards more the, you know, the, the skill that's, that shows their extroversion and that shows their ability to connect with people. So it, again, it really depends on the job. And on top of that, it depends on the job in the context of the company, because the company, every company is different. Every culture is different. And, you know, somebody can be incredibly successful at, you know, ABC company, and then they go to XYZ company, same job, or roughly same job, and they, it doesn't work, because they don't have perhaps all the support systems. So context matters a lot. It does. And I, I've had some companies, they're so clear with their culture, they've made me memorize it. Or another company, I have no idea what, what they expect. Here's your desk and here's a phone, right? And, and it may t- take me a while to, to learn what it is. Usually, if they just show you a desk and a phone, you kind of know what it is. It's not good. But, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into this whole interviewing, finding diverse people, finding the right people. And I was thinking about this as I was coming up with what I was wanting to talk to you about today. And I remember a few people I thought were really good candidates interviewed for my pharmaceutical company for where I worked, which I worked in the past. And they happened to come in at a time when they were using these remote camera crews to go in and have them just be the, the interviewer kind of thing. They were, it wasn't even somebody from the company. It was just somebody holding the camera and saying, Susan, what do you think about this? And they would just ask them the question, but they didn't ha- they had no other interest in the company, but they're then filming it. So basically, the people interviewing, the interviewees had to look at the camera and just talk to, they don't know who their other, who's at the other end, but they're just answering questions. And I saw a lot of really good people not make it in that, you know, they probably would have if under normal circumstances. So now that we're in a virtual hiring, virtual things, there's still people now at the other end, you can see people, but is there an impact by that? Is it making it better? Is it making it worse? Or does it have no impact? I think it makes it better. I really think it makes it better. Now, I think the example you gave is somewhat impersonal, and I think that would be really kind of tough. But there are tools now. I mean, we use a tool called HireVue where you can record your answers to standard questions. And it's probably better for more entry-level positions. But I think also the population now is, and especially millennials and, and Gen Zs, I mean, they're just so accustomed to being on a camera that it isn't that, you know, it's not as uncomfortable as it might have been, you know, with prior generations. So I think, you know, I would say that in the past, though, before COVID, I mean, I did all my interviews by phone. It was very rare to do a, you know, a Zoom or a, a, a Skype. At later stages in the process, yes, but not right up front. But now that's really what we do. And I think, I think it's a platform we're going to have forever. Honestly, 
And even if we are all back in the office someday, which I don't actually think will happen, I think it's always going to, I just think we're going to be hybrid for a long time. These are tools that give you so much information right away that, you know, over the phone, you don't always get, I will say. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, but no, it does. And yeah. I wonder if we'll get to a 3D soon because I remember going to see Michael Jackson's show in, in Vegas and they Little had avatars. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, honestly, we, I think, I actually think that's going to happen. I really do. I really think that's going to happen. I mean, the technology will happen now, how it gets adopted and, but I actually think it will happen. You know, it's so interesting to look at this from both sides, though, from the interviewee and interviewer. And I think that when you're, you, you already gave great examples from India and how you, to get people and how the complications are with the 50% dropping. But are there specific questions that you change based on the different areas? It could be the same job in Canada and the same job in India, but do you ask different questions or change anything based on just the culture of the area to make it fit better? Maybe. I don't think so. Now, I'm going to really focus here probably more on the executive candidates in those locations. So the challenges are different. So yes, the questions would be, you know, if it's an executive in Canada versus an executive in India, by definition, they're going to be different business challenges that they need to, you know, lead or change. I mean, I think where it really, where the questioning is different is what is the problem that we need this executive to solve. And so, as we know, like if there's an opening, it can be a new job. Like it can be a brand new job that, uh, gosh, we need a XYZ because this is a new area we don't understand. The kind of questions I would ask somebody for that role are really different than the questions I would ask somebody who's coming in to fix a broken, a broken process because they're just different. They're different business challenges. So, you know, somebody that's coming in for something new, I'm looking for their, their, entrepreneurialism, their ability to look at a greenfield and get excited about it. And, you know, anytime they've taken a chance on something that wasn't really clear, uh, nobody knew if it could be successful, you know, those would be those kind of questions. If it's something where it's a broken process, I'm really looking for their leadership skills. I am looking for where have they fixed something? Where have they taken a broken brand and reestablished it, if you will? Where have they taken a team that's just completely not working? and rebuilt the team? How did they do that? And did they end up with a group that the rest of the company looked at went, oh my gosh, you know, that was not working two years ago. And now it's like the highest performing group in the company. Somebody that can do that, those are the kind of the kind of questions I would ask would be, you know, tell me more. You know, that's one of my favorite questions. Yeah. <laughs> tell me more. Because <laughs> you get people to expand and sometimes they think they've said enough, but they, they have a lot more to say. And as you're saying that, it you know, some of the classes I teach on ethics, we get into if you have a branch, say in India, or you have a branch in Canada, or you have whose code of ethics do you use? Very good question. Yeah. Very, very good question. (laughs) And, you know, this is where being flexible matters because, you know, and sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes it's the legislation and like, you know, data privacy in Europe, like we don't have a choice and it's at a much higher level than we would maybe do in the United States or maybe some other country. But on the ethics side or the integrity side, you know, I think, I think you do have to, if you're CEO, you really have to get to a place of what what matters to you. 
or what you think should matter to the rest of the company. And if it's a complex multinational company, you know, like anything, there are certain things that I think are true, you know, and integrity is an interesting one because, you know, in some countries, you know, it's subjective. There's some very interesting practices. And we know about some of those companies that have gotten themselves in trouble because they went with whatever the custom of the country was, and it was against the law in Canada or the United States. So you have to get pretty clear about what you're willing to do to get business and what you're not willing to do to get business. But in terms of just basic leadership and management of people, I really do believe it. Maybe I'll be proven wrong someday, but I really believe that every person is just looking for someone that they can, as an employee, looking for someone they can learn from. Everybody, not everybody, but 99% of people want to do the right thing. And unfortunately, in HR, we have to deal with the 1% that don't sometimes. <laughs> right, but, you get to the rest. <laughs> but I come into this thinking, you know what, everybody has, you know, a pretty pure focus. I mean, you know, we want to make money, but, you know, we're not going to cut co- or shave corners of, you know, safety, for example. Now, some companies might, but I think that would be a CEO decision. Like, at what level do you decide it's okay to do that? And, you know, PG&E, I don't think I'm speaking out of school, but PG&E, in the United or in California has dealt with this and and they made I mean it's well documented but they made decisions not to do maintenance on certain big pieces of their infrastructure and you know we saw what has happened San Bruno and other horrible things now that was a decision so they made the decision to you know cut costs now there's cutting costs that don't hurt people and then there's cutting costs that can hurt people so i think you know i don't know i'm kind of riffing here a little bit and I apologize but but I think it's really important when you're running a global company to know where you stand on what I would call the basics but they are you know fundamental kind of basics around integrity or you know treating people with respect or collaboration or you know so so things like that become I think very important yes and a lot of that requires curiosity which of course I love you know to to collaborate you have to ask all these questions and some of the case studies I include in some of my courses about some companies that maybe could have done a better job of asking questions like Subway found out the hard way that a lot of countries weren't crazy about sandwiches as much as they are in the United States. So do you do any kind of testing of the areas in which you expand or how your products will do in other countries or, or cultural quotients of any kind of you know, that kind yeah, of- that's a good, you know, I don't have that much experience on the consumer side of things because, you know, on the business side, especially business software, I mean, yeah, there are certain nuances, perhaps, you know, taxes or accounting, what have you, but generally our customers need more or less the same kinds of things to run their businesses because we're selling to businesses and whether the business is in Germany or in South Africa or Malaysia or whatever, I mean, their businesses. I think on the consumer side, that I'm just not pr- really the best person to answer that. Yeah, that's just really good because you know it's interesting though, you know, because there's just so many factors that each company deals with in in different ways. You mentioned some of the countries you dealt with India, India and Germany and different things, and now with uh, everything's being so virtual, we're not meeting in person. Maybe in the past, everybody would fly into one same time zone, and now we're trying to deal with all these different time zones and different challenges. How are you guys dealing with that? And what's what's your biggest challenges with not being able to travel during all this? Or Yeah, I mean, the plus side is not having to travel for business for a one-hour meeting because that's just, 
I think we've all learned that's a complete waste of time. We don't need to do that anymore. And that's a fantastic thing because it's expensive and it's wear and tear on everybody, you know, and there's a lot of dead time in, you know, at the front end and the back end of those trips. The downside though, is that, you know, at least during COVID for sure. And even now, you know, we do a lot of 6am calls, you know, I do a lot of calls with India at six. And by the way, that's nothing compared to my friends in India, because they're doing that call at nine o'clock at night. So, you know, we're global, but the time zones are still the time zones. So it actually has kind of mixed up the day. So a regular nine to five, at least in the world we live in with a global kind of workforce and customer set, you know, you're working, you're working many different hours now, which in some ways lends itself to hybrid so much better because, you know, if I have to get on a call at 5 a.m., I'm not going to get a shower and do my hair and be ready at five. I'm just not. I mean, and, and nor, nor would I expect any of my employees to do that, frankly. So I think it has really, you know, look, but if I can do a call from five, six, six to seven, seven, I mean, by nine o'clock, I could do four calls. Now I do have my hair in a ponytail and, you know, I might not have much makeup on, but boy, did I get a lot done instead of waking up at four. Now I'm exhausted. I get to the office at five. That's just, a huge thing with me, you know, because I do a lot of virtual either the show or or my consulting and different things and I, I've noticed that I get a lot of men will go well can we just meet for an hour and they get up and they go like this their hair's done they go <laughs> so much easier for guys <laughs> honestly it's so stuff. much easier you know what I mean? it's so then, much easier but the other good news though for women <laughs> is that okay you do this but you know like I have yoga pants on right now. <laughs> so. right, 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 right. I always wonder what happened to the pants industry out there. I think I asked in one of those CHROs that because they sold clothes. <laughs> I could yeah, so I, you know, I, I've had way more calls in my ponytail than I would be proud of. But yeah, I think know. we're going to not care as much about that kind of stuff. I, you just can't and still do business. But, you know, you're dealing with so many generations that we're talking about having a diverse workplace. We've had more generations than we've ever had. And I remember trying to forecast what was going to happen. Uh, I think it was 15 years ago or 10 years ago, whenever I gave a talk for Forbes, we were talking about the future of the workplace and all these generations, what's going to happen. And it was all talking about, well, when boomers retire, whether millennials will do this or that, but boomers aren't retiring like we thought. And how are you keeping boomers interested in this, you know, in some of this heavy duty high tech stuff? And maybe they weren't, you know, so much well, raised. I mean, the world has moved this way. And, you know, you and I both worked at IBM as our first job out of college. So, you know, and I'm, I am squarely a boomer, but I think it's mindset and it really isn't age. It is mindset. And so if a boomer did not move or did not work in the tech business, and kind of resists whatever email or whatever it is they're resisting. That is kind of the lingua franca now of work and of business because business is about being efficient and using technology to be efficient. Now, again, I have a obviously that lens <laughs> coming from a software company, but if someone isn't really willing to, you know, learn, act to curiosity, I think they're going to be at a disadvantage and, and maybe, you know, it, it's not for them. And I think, you know, you know, you think about people like I think about people in their 80s and 90s and whatever, who are just as relevant today as they were back in the day, but also they kept up and they've kept up with the changes. And so, like, I mean, I talk about avatars, like I don't play video games. I don't love the idea that I'll be an avatar someday, assuming I'm still working. But the reality is that's probably what's going to happen. So I should 
kind of get my head around it and figure that out. If, in fact, I want to stay in the game and stay engaged and be relevant, because that's the other thing about different generations. And I've always worked with different generations, and I still do. I mean, I have all kinds of ages and stages on my teams. And I think it's being interested in what their challenges are and also listening to them about what are the things that are going to make us more relevant and more efficient, perhaps. You know, and I mean, I, I, I love technology from the perspective of making organizations more efficient. I always have. I think it's one of the things I have loved about this industry. And I still love it, frankly. But I also think, though, that for boomers that can't, you know, maybe just, yeah, look, maybe they didn't have the opportunity in the kinds of places they worked. I get that. But if it's a requirement of being able to do the work or, you know, be in the organization culturally, then you make a choice, you know? It's the avatar conversation. I kind of, I don't really mind that. I kind of think of it as like Dorian Gray picture that's aging in a closet somewhere. <laughs> you look the same forever. But as far as the boomers not going along with whatever the new thing is, they're probably not going to try to go to work for a company that's a high tech company if that's not their thing. But we're seeing even the lower tech companies. I, mean, I remember in pharmaceutical sales when we used to write our notes in handwritten notebooks, and then they came out with these handheld computers, and the whole place just freaked out. I mean, it was just like this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to them. Right? And it did take longer at the beginning to do it on the computers because nobody knew what they were doing. And I loved it because I love tech, but I'd say ninety nine percent hated it. But I mean, can you imagine writing anything? And when I watch old X Files and they got all those files behind them in the file drawers, I'm like, how did you ever find anything? So we we do need to advance and get into this. Well, and you make a good point about change change management too, because even you know, I mean, I can think of experiences where we've put in new systems, and I'm like, oh no, this is going to be such a that resistance we're going to get even my own resistance like i already know how to do it this way it's easier to do it this way now you're asking me to do four more things so we are human we don't like change especially when we've mastered something and we love being you know we love being good at things that gets into another topic which i oh, think is i love it everybody. it's change management and how do you lead groups through change and you know, who's the cheerleader on the team that, you know, sometimes everybody gets sick of, but you need someone that's really positive about this change and what the benefits are going to be. And then you get the project manager who makes sure everybody stays on track. And, and you really do try to minimize the naysayers, you know, you know, the little ones like, oh, this is never going to work, it's never going to work, you know. Well, I'm glad you said that sometimes you feel that way because it validates my research and curiosity because one of the things I found that inhibits people from curiosity is technology. And it's the things like what you're saying, that even if you're great, like we love it, you can find it as a headache. I, we just had 1.0. We really, do we need 2.0? Do we really need to, whatever goes on in your head creates this assumption and that can lead to people's well, fear. It always or feels like extra work when you have to get your main work done and now you're adding in all this, you know, change, if you will, just make it change for, to make it simple. And like, wow, this is going to take me longer to get my work done. And at the end of the day, it won't generally, I mean, unless it's a terrible system, <laughs> but generally it won't. But going through that process, it's extra work. And it feels, you know, like, I think generally people like to master things. People like to be good at things. And once you're good at something, anything that makes you not good at it when you're learning something else is uncomfortable. Right. But, you know, I think if people understand and they've had a picture painted for them of why they're doing something, 
I think it makes all the difference. It does. Absolutely. When you're training people, how much do you tie into the overall goals, what they do all day and what it, how this change interacts with what we're trying to do. Do you find that people get that? Okay. I get it now. Light go off in there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they do. I mean, generally people do. And, and even if they don't, you know, most people, you know, they need their job, they want their job and they're going to, you know, hopefully just put it to the side while they're going through that process. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, when, as we're looking at all these aspects of creating a diverse workplace and dealing with different cultures and hiring the best people, I just want to see if you have a last thing you'd like to add about what's your biggest challenge that you see coming up this year in any of those areas, is there one particular thing you want people to, Hey, this is what I found, or this is what we made a mistake that I learned from, or, you know, wow. is there some story you want to share that I haven't asked you about? Oh, that's such a good question. Cause there's so many different ways I could go with that. I think, you know, rather than have a universal truth, cause I'm sure there are some I could share, but I actually think it's really important to, Again, context. You know, we're in a very, very uncertain time as an economy right now, or as a world even. And I think that at least in tech, some of the go-go stuff pre-COVID, and even during COVID, frankly, a lot of companies did incredibly well during COVID. As I mean, we did as a company. But I think now with the war in Ukraine and inflation and just incredible uncertainty out there that we have not seen before. We haven't seen inflation in a long time. And most executives, most CEOs have never dealt with inflation. That's today, current state. They're all Gen Xers, you know, or some baby boomers, but they were baby boomers. They were in high schools during the inflation in the 70s. So, you know, a lot of people haven't dealt with this. So I think going forward, I am usually a pretty bullish person and pretty optimistic, but I'm kind of cautious right now. And I also think companies need to be a lot more mindful about their both their hiring and also a lot more scrutinizing of their executives. Because I think the skills that got these companies to where they are today with the executives that they have are going to need people that are, they're going to need some different skills at the most senior levels to navigate through this time. Such as? I think probably more, I don't know what the right word is, a little bit more of an an accountant mindset, a finance mindset. But this is the hardest part. How do you take more of a, we have to kind of ranch, we have to to be more careful, but still keep people motivated and still keep people motivated about the future. So I think it's going to be leaders that, you know, maybe more military people will come up with the rank or will be running companies because they've seen, you know, they've been through metaphorically, they've been through battle, they've been through rough times. So you have to be able to sort of navigate during this very, very tricky time back to, and, you know, again, economic cycles go up and down, but we're definitely in the downer, you know, we're more in the down and weirdly so because we still have such a high demand for labor. I just think it's going to take people who are really multidimensional, not just left brain thinkers, not just right brain. It's going to take people that are much more integrated in the way they think about problems. It'll be interesting to see what part charisma plays as well, because that comes up quite a bit. But that would be a whole nother discussion. And that's a whole nother discussion (laughs) because charisma is actually, I think, a key. That that goes a long way, frankly. It does. It does. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I, I really enjoyed this discussion, Susan. This was so helpful. I think so many people can learn so much from you about talent acquisition, equity, diversion, inclusion, all the things that you're doing at Open Tech. So thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. We always love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, head over to gmn.net and say hello. That's where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. Be sure to follow Global Mentor Network on Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to head over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe for more tips to elevate your impact. While you're at it, leave a rating and comment. It helps us to keep improving the podcast for you. See you next time for another episode of Leaders Playbook.